Well, uh, before we get started today, let me tell you about something really important that I know that you would want to know about. And let me get all the way to the end because I know this is something you're going to want to get excited about and probably get a little bit rowdy about. So just let me finish because otherwise I know that you're going to end up interrupting. But today, uh, for all of you in London and all of you in Somerset, uh, something you need to be reminded of concerning all the people that are in Williamsburg right now. Today marks the one-year anniversary since we launched our Williamsburg campus. And over this past year, they've backed baptized 29 people and there's over a couple hundred people there today and so can we wish them a happy anniversary yeah. absolutely and Williamsburg what you can't see here there's literally people hopping over chairs right now I mean it's crazy it's ridiculous would you get off the wall hey, come on knock it off I mean, people are so excited, and uh, Jack and Suzanne Willis, great job over the past year, and Lance and Kara Freeman, super job as you lead music, and uh, kids, we're just so proud of what's going on there, and what we believe is about to happen there, so congratulations. Uh, today, uh, we're kicking off a brand new series called The Future of Faith, and uh, the best place that I know to start is with a story out of the Old Testament. Uh, the first king of Israel was a guy by the name of Saul, and it's a really incredible story, interesting story, fascinating story. Uh, you should go read it sometime. It's a story about a man who became king because he was tall, dark, and handsome. Uh, evidently, the prerequisite to being a great king was being tall, dark, and handsome. The people wanted a king. They never had a king before. They saw other nations have kings. They wanted to be a nation, so they said, we need a king, and look, there's a guy, tall, dark, and handsome. We want him, and that was Saul, and so the uh, prophet of the day said, Samuel went and anointed Saul to be king over the nation of Israel. And the descendants of Abraham, uh, a family, had now become a nation, and they had their first king, King Saul. Uh, as uh, Saul's story goes, uh, his disobedience would ultimately cost him his kingdom. And because he continually rebelled against God, God announced that he was going to take the kingdom away from Saul. And so Samuel the prophet went to Bethlehem, found a teenager who was a shepherd, who was a warrior, who was a poet that we're going to know a lot about later on, a guy by the name of David. So he anoints a little teenager by the name of David to be the next king over Israel. But Saul is going to continue to reign for another 15 years. And his reign and his life are going to continue to unravel right up until the time of his death. And this is why his death is so important. Because when Saul died, he plunged the nation into uncharted territory. When Saul died, it was an unprecedented time of change and transition because this was a new nation. This was a new kingdom. They had never had a king before. They just lost their first king. And so the question was, who's going to be king next? How is the transfer of power actually going to take place? Is it going to be peaceful? Is there going to be a war? These are moments in monarchies and kingdoms that can destroy kingdoms, especially infant kingdoms such as Israel. And so it was an unprecedented time. It was uncharted territory. And people had to decide, you know, are we going to get behind someone in the house of Saul or is the next king David? Are we going to get behind David? And so people began to pick sides, and most people picked the side of David because he was obviously God's man. He was going to be the next king of Israel. So in the book of 1 Chronicles, uh, the Israelite historian begins to write about this particular segment of history. And he writes about how in this uncharted territory, this unprecedented time of change and transition, that the different tribes of Israel began to send warriors and soldiers 
to side with and to stand for David and even fight for David if need be. And so in 1 Chronicles 12, the, the, the historian writes about how Judah sent over 6,000 and then the tribe of Simeon and Ephraim and, and how all of these different tribes of Israel sent people to stand with David and you know were willing to also fight for David if need be. And then in the midst of that history, uh, the historian records something about the tribe of Issachar, which is so interesting and really intriguing that really breaks rank with everything that he says before and anything that he's going to say after. This is what the historian says about leaders from the tribe of Issachar. From the tribe of Issachar, there were 200 leaders of the tribe with their relatives. All these men understood the signs of the times and knew the best course for Israel to take. That's all he tells us. But the historian obviously felt like this is something you need to know about these leaders from the tribe of Issachar. And so what we can infer about these men from these, you know, these leaders from this particular tribe, they were paying attention. They were paying attention to what was happening around them politically, socially, economically. Uh, these were people who were listening. They were listening to the voices of their age. They were listening to the voices of people. They were being students of their culture. And because of it, they knew how best to respond in that season of uncharted territory and unprecedented change. They knew the best course to take. They knew the best path forward. They knew the things that needed to be corrected and they knew the things that needed to happen as a result of what they saw happening around them. They knew the present and consequently, that allowed them to know how to best influence the future. They knew the present, and because of it, they knew how to best influence the future. And that introduces us to a principle that's going to bring us into this series called The Future of Faith. And here it is. When we study the present, it positions us to be stewards of the future. As a church here at the Creek Church, as a group of Jesus followers, it is my hope for our church... In this season of life, in my life, in your life, it is my hope for the Creek Church that the same thing that was said of the leaders from the tribe of Issachar will be able one day to be said of us. That we paid attention. We paid attention to what was happening in our day. That we paid attention to what was happening in our culture. That we stayed sensitive to what needed to be corrected. We stayed sensitive to what needed to happen in order for us to better influence the future. That we knew the signs of the times and because of it, we understood the best course to take. That we understood what was happening in the present. And because of it, we knew what needed to happen in the present in order to influence the future. And just not the future, but the future of faith. So we're going to start things off by talking about what's happening today, what's happening in our generation, because we want to pay attention. We want to listen. We want to be students of the culture and not critics of the culture. We want to be like the leaders from Issachar. We want to know the signs of the times. And consequently, we want to understand the best path forward because of what we see happening around us. So let me tell you a little bit about our generation, some facts about our generation. People are living longer than ever before. In our generation, people are living longer than ever before. In 1900, the life expectancy in this nation was 47. That means that some of you, if you had been alive in 1900, you wouldn't be alive in 1900. So 47 years old in the year 1900 was the life expectancy. In 1950, 
it was 66, which is the current age of retirement. Today, the life expectancy of the average person in America is 79 years old. Now, you probably don't have time to think about this, neither do I, but there's some people out there thinking about this. This is highly consequential. People are living longer and the repercussions of that, they are major. There are financial consequences to this to consider. In 1935, when Social Security was enacted and passed, when Social Security was thought up and it was considered to be a guarantee for Americans to have some type of retirement pension once they get to retirement age. In 1935, when Social Security started, the average life expectancy was 61. So the average person didn't even make it to the age where they would receive Social Security. So it wasn't hard to pay for Social Security. But today people live much longer. And paying for Social Security is a big concern. It is a big problem. For instance, last year in this country, there were more people over 100 years old than people who collected Social Security in 1937. It's consequential. There's increasing healthcare costs. People are living longer, there's more chronic illness, so people go to the doctor more, people have long-term treatment. So healthcare costs go up. There are fi family dynamics that are impacted because now you know, men and women who are married are having to think about taking care of their moms and dads who are aging. And then that has implications for you know, sons and daughters and, and life and lifestyles. I mean, it's a big deal. In 2045, in the year 2045, 60-year-old plus adults will outnumber children for the first time in history. It's a big deal. We should pay attention to it. The fastest growing, one of the fastest growing groups in America are 80 plus year old people. And for the first time ever in history, we have five generations of people at the workplace together. And more specifically for where we are and what we're talking about, five generations of people who go to church together. This is a great opportunity, but it's also a great challenge. So don't miss next week because we're going to talk about those five generations and sometimes some of the conflict and some of the differences that exist between them. But people are living longer. The second thing is this. Information is obtained easier. We have more access to information than we've ever had before. We have more exposure, more access to information on a single day than some generations had in a lifetime. We know about almost anything in real time. We know about war in real time, terrorist attacks in real times, you know, uh, shootings in real time. We, we know about politics in real time. I mean, we just, there's so much information. There has never been more information available to us ever in history. And on the flip side, there has also never been more bad information available to us in all of history. And so this is something to pay attention to. Information is obtained easier. You have a question? Google it. If you want to know something, just go on, you know, the internet. If you want to learn how to do something, watch a YouTube video. I mean, we have information at our disposal at any given moment, 24-7. The third thing is this. Change is happening quicker. Sociologists who study these type of things have, have determined that our generation over the past 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 years, and really you could go back 50 years, but let's, let's keep it within the last 25 years, that within the last 25 years, we've seen more technological and social change than any generation in the history of the world. There's this thing, again, called the internet, and it changed everything. It changed the way we gather information. It changed our communication. It changed the way politics is done in this country, how we spend our time. It's changing language. Only 5% of the world's language is on the internet. And many people are fearful, experts are fearful that in the next 100 years, the other 95% of the languages that aren't represented are just gonna disappear. And so they're taking you know, action to try to protect that. 
We shop online. I mean, to go shopping, to get what you need, you open the front door and pick up the Amazon box. And then you go back inside and that's how we shop. We bank online. We order our coffees online. We can order our coffee online, walk in watching Netflix and do a deposit all at the same time. It's unbelievable, right? I mean, we got GPS on our phones. Yesterday, Allison and myself, we were cleaning out some cabinets. And what I mean by that is she was cleaning out some cabinets and I was watching. And, and she said, look at this. Look at this. And she brought down this big book. I mean, it was, it was that big and it was that wide. And I said, what in the world is that? And it was a book of maps. Now, for some of you, hold on a moment. Let me explain this. Once upon a time. There was a whole industry around publishing maps. And I was thinking, you know what? Who drove with this? They say holding a phone's dangerous. Can you imagine driving down the interstate with that big sucker open and you're trying to find, hey, you know, try. I mean, that was just incredible. I, I was like, oh my gosh. And now we have apps to let us know where the cops are. Not that we're breaking the law, but obviously we want to know how to bless them if we just want to stop and say hi. I mean, that would be a real thing for Christians. Have you got your app on? Why? Well, we need to know where the police are. Are we breaking the law? Oh, I guess so. All right. So, I mean, we got everything. And, and we're watching the collective conscience of our nation change. I mean, things that used to be no are now yes. And things that used to be yes are no. And, and we've watched a lot of change. You put all this stuff together because, again, we should pay attention to it. We should be students of it. We should know what's happening in the present. So hopefully we know how to influence the future. We see that faith is declining faster than ever before. Now, you, you should think about this because you probably haven't thought about it lately. But the younger a generation is in America, the less Christian they are. Now, just let that, just think about that for a moment. Because sometimes we just say something and then we just move past it. But just think about it. The younger a generation is in this country the less Christian they are. The two youngest and the two largest uh, generations are the same. The millennials and Generation Z. They're the youngest two generations, they're the largest two generations. Millennials and Generation Z. Now, millennials, uh, some of you are millennials, uh, and, and there's a bunch of millennials that are not in the local church anywhere. So let me tell you a little bit about millennials. Millennials, 60% of them have left the church. 60% of them have left the church. That means they were raised in the church, and then when they had the option to decide for themselves, they decided to leave the church. 20% of millennials today, they think that the church is not worth their time or effort to be a part of in a significant way. 40% of millennials believe that the church is harmful. It's harmful, not helpful, it's harmful. There's more skepticism among millennials concerning the Bible than any generation in the history of the world. They're skeptical about Old Testament history. They're skeptical about Old Testament accounts. They're skeptical about stories about miracles. They have big questions. And they're more skeptical about the Bible than any generation in the history of the world. Previous generations, they said, you know what? The Bible says that we believe it, not the millennials. They have questions, big questions. Many of them look at the Bible and say, well, you know, the Bible's just a book. It's kind of like all these other books. It's just a book. 30% of millennials say the Bible is a dangerous book that's used to oppress people. Among millennials, 18 to 29 years old, there are twice as many atheists as there are evangelicals. Twice as many atheists as there are evangelicals, 18 to 29 year olds. That's the millennials. Then you get to Generation Z, and those are the people born after 1996. They're the most diverse generation in the history 
of this country. Half are non-white. They are the first post-Christian generation of history. And only 4%, only 4% of them have a biblical worldview. That means only 4%, four out of 100, in any way allow the scriptures to influence the way they live their life. 35% of Generation Z teenagers are atheists, 35% of them. They have learned their theology, they have learned their morality and their sexual ethic from Google. They had questions about religion, questions about faith, questions about God, and they typed it in and they read and they watched videos and that's where they were discipled by and large. They are the least Christian generation in history. And most of the millennials and most of the Generation Z, they were raised by parents who claimed to be Christian, but in no way prioritized the practice of faith or in no way prioritized their interaction or their engagement in the local church in any significant way. So most of Generation Z and most of millennials were raised by people who claimed to be Christian, but they just did not care a lot about their Christian faith and they did not prioritize their involvement in the local church. And that's how we got to this place. Christianity in America, basically, we're reaching fewer people, Christians are having fewer kids, and we're losing the majority of the kids that we do have. The US church is getting smaller and it's getting older. It's shrinking and it's aging. By the year 2070, Islam will, surpa will surpa surpass Christianity as the largest religion, the dominant religion. And by all the current markers, the future of faith in this country doesn't look good. It doesn't look good. And here's the thing. I don't want that to be true here. And you don't want that to be true here. I don't want that to be true about my kids. I don't want that to be true of your kids. You don't want that to be true of your kids or your grandkids or your great grandkids or your nieces or your nephews or your brother's kids or your sister's kids. And the good news is it doesn't have to be that way. Because in the scriptures, we are confronted. We are introduced with a God who encourages us to have concern about the future of faith. We are instructed about a God. We are informed about a God who institutionalizes certain things in order to secure the future of faith, to make sure that it is a good thing, that it is a healthy thing, that it is a bright spot and not a dark spot. But in order for us to make sure that what's happening at large never happens here in our church, in our families, in our community, is we have to adopt a brand new paradigm of thinking. Most Christians think like this. They think about the immediate or they think about the ultimate. They think about the immediate, they think about the ultimate. Most people are so busy, they're just thinking about the, uh, the immediate. They're gonna think about where we're gonna do this afternoon, what we're gonna do tonight. Gotta get the kids in the bath. I gotta get the kids fed. I gotta get the kids in bed. Gotta get the kids up tomorrow. I gotta get them to the sitter. I gotta get up. I gotta go to work and I gotta get back. We got that game this weekend. We got the game next weekend. Um, we got the bills to pay. Uh, did he pick that up? I gotta go to the grocery store. And I don't know what I'm gonna do. I'm just going crazy. <laughs> and that's kind of how we live our life. We don't act like it, but that's how we kind of feel on the inside. We think about the immediate, the immediate, the immediate, the immediate. Then, because the immediate is so stressful, every once in a while, we love to think about the ultimate. Heaven. Death. Rest. You know, what a wonderful day it's going to be. And, and that's kind of how Christians think. We think about the immediate, and we think about the ultimate. We think about the immediate, and we think about the ultimate. But in the scriptures, we're encouraged to think of another way. We're encouraged to think generationally. Now, we're going to think immediately because we have to, and we're going to think ultimately because we should, but we also have to think generationally. Thinking generationally is thinking beyond my lifetime. 
and even beyond those who follow my lifetime. Thinking generationally, it requires us to think about those who are furthest away from us, not those closest to us. Thinking generationally is about thinking not only about those that we know and love close to us, but it's also thinking about those who are far away from us that we love, but yet we do not know. Now, for those of us who are parents or grandparents or aunt and uncles, you know, we love the idea of, you know, our kids, our nieces or nephews, you know, getting married and having kids and then their kids having kids. I love the idea of grandkids. I just love the idea of grandkids. Way too young for grandkids, obviously. But, you know, grandkids, I love the idea of grandkids and then great grandkids. Oh, that would be incredible. And what if, what if, what if I could exercise enough and eat good enough to make it to the generation after that? Wouldn't that be incredible? It'd be awesome. And I, I love my grandkids, but I don't know them. I love the idea, the concept, the potential reality of it. And thinking generationally is just not about me loving my kids who are close to me that I love and that I know. But thinking generationally is about thinking about those who are furthest from me that I love and yet do not know yet. Thinking generationally is when you realize that your life should be bigger than your lifetime. That your life should be bigger than your lifetime. And this is the idea that we're confronted with in a particular Psalm, Psalm 78. The book of Psalms, you know, it's right there in the middle of your Bible. It is a song book. The Psalms are songs. And Psalm 78 is a song that was written by Asaph. Asaph was basically, you know, the music leader uh, back during the days of King David. And he wrote a song. It would be the equivalent of someone like Zach here or Dalton in Somerset or Lance in Williamsburg writing a song for us. And the purpose behind the song is so that we would sing this song over and over again, or we would read this song over and over again and be reminded of something really important. And so he writes this song that is anchored to the past, that's directed to the people in the present in order to help them influence the future. And this is what Asaph, this is what he wrote. He said, my people, hear my teaching." Listen to the words of my mouth. And and this is passionate language because he says, I want you to stretch your ears. I want you to give some effort. I want you to lean in, slow down. I want you to listen. It's important. Our culture tells us in church, we ought to just make it as easy and as short and as quick as humanly possible and move on because people have got other things to do. And, And Asaph says, no, listen, you need to slow down. You need to stop thinking about what you're about to do next because this is personal. You just may not know it yet. This is personal for you. This is personal for me, Asaph would say. This is something that he felt passionately about. He says, this is important for you. This is important for those that you love. This is important for your children, your grandchildren. And if you embrace the message of what I'm about to say, Asaph would say, there's going to be generational consequence. So this is is what he says. He says, I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things from of old, things we have heard and known. How do we know these things? Things our ancestors have told us. Now, we, many of us think about a parable. We think about an untrue story that communicates something that is true. But a parable is just a story with an application. And this time, Asaph, this, this incredible songwriter, he takes history. He takes history. And he makes it into a parable. He takes a parable and he wraps it in history. And he takes history that a lot of people find boring and a lot of people, you know, they're indifferent to and they just don't give a lot of thought about it. You know, he takes history and he pairs it with meaning. 
And when you pair history with meaning, it gives you insight. It gives you wisdom. It helps you like the sons of Issachar. Know the signs of the time and know the best course to take. He says, so we're going to open up our mouth and we're going to say the things that were once upon a time said to us. These hidden things, things that you haven't given time to think about, things that you're too busy to even pay attention to, things that unless you stop and think about it, you just won't think about it. So I'm going to tell you a story, he says, to unhide these things that apparently people have been too busy to think about. Because he says history is going to teach us how to influence the future. The history of faith is going to tell us how to shape the future of faith. He says, so what we've been told by our ancestors, we're going to open our our mouth. And he says, we will not hide them from their descendants. From whose descendants? Our ancestors who told us some things. They told us some things so that we would tell their descendants. So how can we, who've been told certain things, important things from our ancestors, why would we keep them from the next generation and rob them of what we know, of what we've been told. He said, we will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders that he has done. In other words, we are going to do for someone else what someone else did for us. Asaph, he sensed a responsibility for the future of faith and he wants you and me to feel the same weight. He wants us to feel the same responsibility, to take responsibility for the future of faith. And so he says, we're going to tell them the story of God. We're going to tell them what God has done for us collectively, and we're going to tell them what God has done for us personally. We're going to tell them the story of God's intervention in the history of our people. But we're also going to tell the story of how God has intervened in our lives personally. So we're going to roll up our sleeves, and we're going to show the next generation our scars to let them know that we've had pain and that we have had some things that we wish that we wouldn't have gone through, but we've gone through. We're going to show them our scars. We're going to get honest about our struggles. We're going to open up the closet and we're going to tell them a little bit about our history so that they can write a better future. We're going to tell the next generation what the next generation needs to know in order to embrace faith and in order to further the future of faith. And here's what he does. He gives all of us the responsibility for ensuring future faith. So it doesn't matter whether you're mom or dad, it doesn't matter if you're a parent or not. If, you're, if you work in children's ministry, if you work in student ministry, if you're a man or a woman, if you're a mentor, you mentor a young lady, you mentor a young guy, if you invest your life in someone coming behind you, and that's the next generation. So whatever age group you are, if you have somebody coming behind you, that's the next generation. So this is for anybody that we should feel responsibility to further faith. And so he goes on, he says, he decreed statues for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded, not suggested, he commanded our ancestors to teach their children. So our ancestors, he said, told us because God told them to tell us. So we are deciding to tell them because God told them to tell us and now he's telling us to tell them. God cared about the future of faith from the very beginning. Now, if you're a parent, I've been a dad now, coming up in a couple of weeks for nine years. And I say it all the time, it is the greatest gig in all the world. I I love being a dad. I've been a dad for nine years to Shepherd and been a dad to Grayson for over six years. 
Allison was in the first service, so let, let me talk to moms and dads and grandparents for just a minute. God tasked us with the responsibility for our children's spiritual formation. God said, mom, dad, it's your responsibility when it comes to your child's spiritual formation. Don't let your child be discipled by the coach. Don't let your child be discipled by the internet. Don't let your child be discipled by the school. You are the primary one who holds responsibility for the spiritual formation of your child. And God made it that way from the very beginning. Listen, I cannot. I make fun of how I was raised sometimes in the church, you know, but it's all in good spirit. And, and I do that even when I'm with my family and they make fun of me and, and, and my way of church. And, and it works out real well. It's a great family dynamic. And, and so, you know, it's only gone bad once or twice. But <clears throat> I, I remember growing up and I cannot separate who I am today from how I was raised. I, I can remember my parents, listen, my parents made me go to church Sunday morning, Sunday night and Wednesday. And I'm telling you, I hated it, I hated it, I hated it. More times than not, I hated it. I, I couldn't stand the preaching, I hated the singing. I just, you know, it was just, oh my gosh, there was nobody there my age, but I'm telling you, I'm telling you, there's a part of me that would not go back and rewrite any of that because I cannot separate who I am today from that investment of faith from my childhood. And here's the thing. I can remember leaving a Sunday night service and I love Sunday night services because, you know, the preacher, he, you know, he was, he didn't have time to write two sermons. So he pretty much only wrote one sermon and he wrote it for the Sunday crowd because they were bigger. And on Sunday night, you know, everybody was pretty sensitive to the Holy Spirit because if the Holy Spirit showed up and, you know, you started singing some songs and people started crying and some people started shouting, that meant the preacher could basically get up and say, hey, it's been a good place to be. I think God just wants us to just give an invitation and go home. And, and, and I was back in the back saying, praise God, it's 47 minutes in and we're going to get out in less than 55. God is so good. And, and, and so, you know, on Sunday night, you know, everybody just, you know, they kind of came fired up in the church and boy, they'd shout and sing and, you know, pray and it'd be incredible and awesome and testify. You know, I could get out of hand every once in a while, but you know, if they were restrained, you know, we could get out of there and, and, and we were off and my parents would take me to, you know, some, some people's houses. They would just kind of, you know, randomly rotate it. And, and oftentimes we would end up at somebody's house and there'd probably be 12 or 14 different couples there. And, and then there would be, you know, kids and grandkids running around. And I would, for two or three and sometimes four hours, and it was a school night, school night. Can you imagine parents get kids out after their bedtime on a school night? Oh, my God. What kind of careless generation was it? And, and so, you know, they, they didn't rush off to get me home and in bed, and, and they just stayed there. And I listened to adults. I listened to adults talk about the Scripture. I listened to adults. Talk about these great stories of the Bible from days gone by. I listened to them talk about what God had done in their life and how God had answered prayer. And they weren't arguing scriptures or debating scriptures. They were just, they were just talking about these things. And I'm so grateful for that. You know what I want my children to be exposed to? To things like that. I want them to see adults who love Jesus, who know how to talk about things related to faith. I just don't want them to grow up in a house where we talk about everything but faith, or we talk about everything way more than faith, and faith just seems to be a second thought or an afterthought. I want my kids to grow up and see adults who are engaged in faith. I want them sometimes maybe kicking or screaming, be involved and exposed to some things that they don't understand it in the moment, but that's marking them for generations to come. And I can't separate that. In my life, my parents, in their own way, took responsibility for my spiritual formation, and I'm glad that they did, and I hope that we all do the same. 
And so he goes on and says, this is why this is so important. So the next generation, so the next generation would know them, would know what? What we've been told, the stories of God. Even the children yet to be born, this is incredible. And they in turn would tell their children. He says, this is the intended purpose, that the next generation would have a foundation for faith. That this generation would tell the next generation who God is and what God is like. That is our responsibility, to tell them who God is and what God is like. That there is an unbroken exchange from generation to generation. This is what God is like. This is who God is. This is what God is like. This is who God is. And he's saying, we all bear responsibility for what will be tomorrow. Listen, back around to what I started with with how we got to where we are today, with how millennials feel about church and faith and God and how Generation Z feels about faith, church and God. How did we get here? Let me tell you how we got here. We got here because there was a generation of moms and dads and grandpas and grandmas who did not take this seriously. They did not take this seriously. And this is how we got to this place. And we can blame it on a lot of things. You can try to blame it on politics. You can try to blame it on Washington. You can try to blame it on media or movies or Hollywood or internet. But at the end of the day, the responsibility falls at the feet of moms and dads who did not take what the scripture said seriously. And here we are. And the point's clear. We are to engage the next generation so the next generation will engage faith. That's what he's saying. We are to engage the next generation so the next generation engages faith. And there's multiple generations in play here. Children, their children, and their children's children. Children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. I call it the generational echo. That when we get this right, the generational echo, it lingers long. It lingers long. That when I'm talking to Shepherd, when I'm talking to Grayson, when I'm, when I'm thinking the way that God wants me to think, and I'm just not thinking about immediate, and I'm just not thinking about the ultimate, but I'm thinking generationally. When I'm talking to Shepherd, when I'm talking to Grayson, you know who I'm also talking to? I'm talking to their children. I'm talking to their great-grandchildren. And I'm speaking out of my life beyond my lifetime. That's the opportunity that we have. As moms, dads, grandparents, and listen, for those of you who pour your lives into children, you work in Kids Creek or Kids Cove, you're working up front, you mentor somebody coming behind you. This is the influence that we have. This is the generational echo that we can have that lingers long after we're gone. Someone right now, they've got my boys, Shepard and Grayson, both. They've been in Kids Creek. They've been in Kids Creek and Kids Cove since they've been six weeks old. Now, I'm not gonna tell you how to raise your kids, but I think you ought to raise them like we raised ours. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> they've been there from the very beginning. From the very beginning. I didn't bring them in here and do calisthenics with them on my lap during church so that I'm getting about every 45th word that's being spoken from the platform. No, I wanted them to be where they could be engaged in a caring, nurturing way when they were too small to understand. But then when they were of the age, I wanted them to be engaged by someone who wasn't their mom or dad with faith, by faith, so that their faith can be furthered into the future. And I'm telling you, there's somebody over there right now. I, I, there's somebody over there right now who's gathering up with them. They're teaching them. They're praying with them. They're asking them questions. They're having a conversation with them. They are speaking into their life. They are partnering with their father and their mother for the spiritual formation of Shepherd and Grayson Barton. 
And whenever we pour ourselves into the next generation, we are pouring ourselves beyond that generation. And this is what he goes on to say. He said, then they would put their trust in God. This is the consequence of it. This is why we do it. So they put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. That's what I want for my kids. It's what I want for your kids. This is what I want for all of our kids. This is what I want for the next generation. This is what you want too, that they would trust God, not trust money, not trust government, not trust culture, not trust in pleasure, but trust in God. So that the more chaos that happens, they can have calm. That even when there's something to be afraid of, they don't have to be afraid because they trust in God. They trust that God is good even when their life isn't good that they won't forget the deeds of God. They know that God is personal. He's been personally involved in the life of his people all throughout history. He wants to be personally involved in their life. And that they will obey, that they will keep his commands. They will center their lives around the teaching of Jesus, of scripture. They will order their life around faith. That's what I want for my kids. Is that not what you want? I want my kids to stay as far away from sin as possible. As someone who jumped in the pool of sin, flirted with sin, carried sin in the pocket, held hands with sin, made out with sin, let me tell you, sin's no fun. Well, it is for a while, but then it's not, right? Then it's not. Then it's heartbreaking. Then it's horrible. You carry it with you the rest of your life. I want them to stay away from that, don't you? you of course we do. This is our responsibility. He says, they would not be like, and if we do this, they will not be like their ancestors, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to him. He says, we have responsibility for the, for, for the formation of future faith. And next week we'll talk about it. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if you're a parent yet. This, this is men, this is women, this is single men, this is single women, this is students. If you're a student, this is investing in the life of a child, anybody. Anybody can find somebody behind them and invest in them and spend time with them. And this is what he's talking about. This is the unbroken chain from one generation to the next. And so for the rest of the Psalm, he tells a story from history to say, don't do it that way. He tells the story of the Exodus. He tells the story about how God's people were slaves and Moses showed up and said, Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh didn't want to let God's people go. And so then God sent plagues and After a few plagues, Pharaoh said, take them away. I don't want to see them anymore. And then, you know, the Red Sea parted. They went across on dry ground. But before before all of that, on the night of the Exodus itself, God told them to celebrate the Passover, to kill a lamb, to put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their house. And and if they would do that at midnight, the death angel would pass over. And and then God told them, for the rest of your life, for for all future history, I I want you to celebrate Passover once a year on this particular day. And then when they said, hey, why do we do this? Why would we do that? God said, because when your children, when your son or your daughter ask you, why are we doing this? Why are we killing this lamb? Why are we putting this blood on the doorpost? Why do we do this special dinner? Why do we say these special prayers? So that it'll be an opportunity for you to institutionalize an opportunity to tell the next generation about what God did in the previous generation. And then after they crossed over the Red Sea, this group of people 
who had been slaves and now set free, they began to murmur and complain, murmur and complain. They complained about the water, the water, we don't like the water. And then they complained about the bread. We don't like the bread. You know, it's bread from heaven. We don't like the bread from heaven. And, and, and you know, they were just always complaining, murmuring. And then they go to Mount Sinai and then God shows up on the mountain and it's smoke and it's lightning and it's fire and it's awesome. And they fall down and they're like, oh my God, God's awesome. And then like a few days later, they're bored with God. You know, what was awesome is no longer awesome. So they build a golden calf because that's kind of how we are. Supernatural becomes natural pretty fast. Awesome becomes average pretty fast. You know, I love to see it happen. People come to our church and they're brand new and they're, oh my God, this is awesome. This is the best church I've ever seen. I'm like, talk to me in three months. See if you still feel that way. No, because it wears off. It's just the way it goes. And they just murmured and complained and murmured and complained. And I think maybe the point is murmuring parents often spawn faithless children because that's what happened. They opted not to go into the promised land and they ended up wandering the wilderness for 40 years and a whole generation had to die. It's a terrible story. They were discontent and ungrateful. And because of it, a generation paid the price. And then he talks about how the conquest, Moses died and Joshua led them in. They settled the land, they drove out all the enemies. They got busy and they got blessed. They got busy and they got blessed. They got busy and they got blessed. And Moses had warned them. He said, hey, listen, when you go over there and you live in the promised land, and you get busy and you get blessed when you live in houses you didn't build and you're drinking from wells you didn't dig. Beware when you get busy and blessed because you tend to forget God when you get busy and blessed. And what happened? They got busy and blessed and they forgot God. And this is the epitaph of that generation. It says in the book of Judges that the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him, who had seen all the great things that the Lord had done for Israel. And then, a whole generation. After that, a whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. Another generation. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. How tragic. And I don't want that to happen here. I don't want that to happen in my family or your family or any of the communities where our churches are. I don't want to see another generation rise up who did not know the Lord nor the things that he had done. Somewhere along the way, a generation didn't take it seriously. Somewhere, a mom or a dad didn't take it seriously. Somewhere, grandparents and parents got so busy and so blessed, it just got off the radar. They got busy and they got blessed and they forgot God and the future of faith was compromised. Now, God gave us two things to make sure that ever happened. God institutionalized two things to make sure that the future of faith is brought. He gave us the family and he gave us the church. And he put it upon all of our shoulders to take responsibility for the future of faith. The family, there's no better place for personal faith to become generational faith than in the family. So dad, what kind of faith will your children inherit from you? And mom, what kind of faith will your son or daughter inherit from you? Do they see you pray? Do they hear you talk about faith and talk about scripture and talk about your love for God and talk about your love for his church? What will your children inherit from you as it relates to your faith? What will the echo that you leave be like in the next generation? 
Will your children merely be convenience attenders? When it's convenient, when there's nothing else going on and the church is not really that important and being active with other Christians is really not that important. What are you teaching? Because you're teaching something. God linked faith and family from the very beginning. And then there's the church. That all of us have the opportunity to invest in the next generation. And we'll talk more about this next week. But every single one of us can take responsibility for the future of faith. And this is what I love about our church, that our church tries to do our very best to invest in the next generation. That's why we do student ministry. That's why we do kids ministry. We wanna make sure that the future of faith is bright. The scripture says one generation will commend your works to another. That's the local church. That's kind of how we do it. It means the choices that we make today echo into future generations. The choices that we make as a church and as families. But here's the good news. When our generation walks by faith, we get to shape the future faith of the next generation. When we get this right, the future of faith is bright. When we get this wrong, in the New Testament, Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, he was concerned about this. So he writes to Christians, and this is what he says. He says, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend. He's talking to you. He's talking to us. To contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. We are the church. And in our families, may we take responsibility for the future of faith. One generation that tells another. And may we be faithful to pass on to the next generation the story of God that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But we sinned and we rebelled against God, but God had a plan to win us back. And for God and the fact that he so loved the world, he gave his only son that the word became flesh. God was manifested in the flesh and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth and his name was Jesus and he was from Nazareth and he walked here on this planet. He lived a sinless life, tempted in all points, even as we are, but yet he, without sin, he died in our place as the supreme final sacrifice for sin. He that knew no sin, became sin for us that we might be right with God and we will tell them that they took him down buried him in a borrowed tomb but on the third day he gave it back because God raised him from the dead and today he's seated at the right hand of the Father he's making intercession for you and for me and he says you can be saved you can be forgiven by grace are you saved through faith it is not of works lest any man should boast so come on come no matter who you are no matter what you've done there is room at the table for you because one day he will come again and he will judge the living and the dead and he will remake heaven and earth and the kingdom of God will be forever let us pass that on let us continue to pass on the story of God so the foundation of the next generation is strong heavenly father we love you. Help us to take responsibility for this. Help us to feel this. The future of faith 
Let one generation declare it to another. Let us pass on an example of how to behave and let us pass on a foundation of what to believe. Help us to feel this. Help us to get this right. In Jesus' name.